Yes. Had a cool episode for you today, guys. We've got Michael Rupert, uh, perennial adventurer and explorer, yeah. on the podcast. I'm really excited. I met him when we um, I went down to do the Appalachian Adventure with Lee Keen for Triple Zero Magazine. Oh, right. And I went up to the top floor of the hotel, and they were like, "Hey, come meet us up here. We're just having drinks or whatever." So I go up there, I sit down, we start talking, and you know, I start asking what I'm doing, what I like to do, what he likes to do, and I'm like, "I love to drive my car over the place." He's like, "Oh, I love adventuring too." This is a, this is an adventure I did. I'm like, oh my god, we were like kin. So I, in terms of adventures, <laughs> I think the term is kindred spirits. Uh, y- kin yes. is progeny. I almost feel that way. Okay. So you know, <laughs> he may not agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it, with anybody that loves exploring and loves getting out there and loves seeing new things, I always feel like a kinship with them. Right. I do. Absolutely. And uh, so I've been thinking about having him on the podcast for a long time. And finally reached out, and he's going to come on. He's going to talk about his trip from uh, the tip of uh, South America to the bottom of it. And also, he's gone all the way across Australia. He's done all kinds of other rides, and he's got a cool Safari 911. So all kinds of different things that I like. So he's going to be on the podcast later. Yeah, and these rides you're talking about, he has an adventure bike. So he does. Yep. So I think he has a few different adventure bikes or whatever. Right. Um, We're also going to talk about Porsche's new 992 that was released today at the Los Angeles Auto Show. 911. Yep. So if you're hearing this now because you're a Patreon member, you're hearing about it the day that it happened. If not, you're on Monday and you're a little bit late, but that's okay. Um, Also, we're going to talk about GM, in my opinion, doing the best that it can. So I don't know if you feel that way or not, but um, so we're going to get into that a little bit. Yeah, we'll get into it. And then uh, also we're going to get we're going to hear from Joel Fetter, who is a um, a journalist for Motor Authority. He's out at the Los Angeles Auto Show, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about Rivian, which is a new manufacturer that I heard about like two days ago. Came out of nowhere. Seriously, came out of nowhere. So I'm really curious about this company um, for a myriad of different reasons that we'll get into before we get into that segment. But that's what's coming up. Um, But uh, yeah, that's. I think that's all that's coming up on the podcast. Oh, I have a joke for you. Okay, let's hear it. (laughs) Okay. So I'm totally stealing this from the internet, but I don't care because it's really funny. So um, a Soviet guy Mm -hmm. is in Soviet Russia, communist Russia, wants to buy a car. So he goes into the car dealership and he goes, hey, guys, I want to buy a car. They're like, okay, what do you want? He's like, oh, I'd like to have this Lada. Great. Uh, It'll be delivered in nine years. And the guy goes, what do you mean nine years? He's like, well, that's the way and it is in Soviet Russia. Yep. He's like, uh, well, the guy that's buying it goes, well, is it going to come in the morning or is it going to come in the afternoon? And the guy's like, it's nine years ago, nine years away. What does it matter? The guy goes, well, my plumber's coming in the morning. <laughs> I thought you were going to work Tesla's delivery scandal in that. Well, it might as well be. Yeah, that's about the same thing, <laughs> okay. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but your Insert Tesla, Russia your t- for Tesla. <laughs> your Tesla will be in here about a year and a half. Well, what do you want that, in the morning or in the evening? <laughs> Well, I don't know. That's when my internet guy from Comcast is finally <laughs> showing up. <laughs> this joke has legs. It works. It does. Yeah, yeah. It works. We can take it a myriad of different directions. Yeah. So, Speaking of buying new cars, have you sold the I've Tahoe? Tra- I have not sold the Tahoe, but I have tried to buy two cars. <laughs> okay. Um, I think that's the wrong order. Yes, but they're cheap, so it's okay. not a big deal. Like, I, There's a... A W123 300 diesel that I'm trying Old to buy. Mercedes. And he's like, yeah, it, it runs really rough, but it's no rust, and the paint is still glossy, and it's white. Where's it from? Here. And I'm and like, no rust. No rust. He brought it up last year, and oh, now okay. it doesn't run right. Okay. And the transmission is screwed up, because th- those cars are all vacuum. Like, everything. Ugh. The door locks. The, See, why do the, you want one of these? That sounds like such a nightmare. It's not that hard, because it's a pretty simple car, but all the door locks, the <laughs> trunk latch, the when you turn the engine off, that's vacuum. There's, like, a vacuum line that comes up to the ignition switch what? to turn that off. Otherwise, you have to get out, open the hood, and hit the stop button on the injection pump <laughs> to get the thing to turn off, um, which, which actually uh. has happened on a couple of those that I've had, where it's like they just... Th- 
whoa, I just heard like a massive smash outside. I felt it in my feet. <laughs> did you feel it? Yeah, I did. Like, hopefully nobody's the dead out falling there. down. Um, um, so anyway, I've had to like get, where you get out and you, you right. shut them off. Otherwise, like on the Volkswagen Rabbits, mm-hmm. what you have to do is you have to get out and put your hand over the intake if they if your stop start stop solenoid is broken. Sure. Yeah, because they had like a little twelve volt thing that when you energized it with twelve volts, it would lift up this little plunger and allow fuel to go by. And when you okay. turn it off, the plunger would fall down and stop the fuel. But on these, it's just vacuum from basically the the engine right. that that shuts it off. So um, anyway, the transmission isn't doing the right thing. It's not shifting correctly, but the transmission shift points are also run off of vacuum. So it's all I vacuum hate operated. Vacuum ran things. Old Audis used to be a lot of vacuum operated. This is way worse. Modules. But I'm sure it is. But I remember what we were doing. What were we doing? It was one of my buddies' uh, URS fours. And we were like installing a stereo or something in it, and there was a. And this is the five-cylinder, yes. uh, ten-valve turbo, twenty-valve. Oh, it was twenty-valve RS four. Yep. Okay. Um, and so we like we were doing something electrical, and he brought it over to my dad's house, and we were working on it, and I was like, oh well, here's a big red line that we can use for power. Well, I like poke into it, and it starts hissing. Well, that's oh, not no. what electrical is supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, the vacuum line was red and like plastic. Yeah, and so that caused well, trouble. You should never poke into any line, electrical or otherwise. As my grandpa would tell you, you have now compromised the sheathing of that wire. And now moisture and every other bad thing can get into it. He used to make uh, the wiring harnesses for Harnischfeger, which or is otherwise known as P&H, which you might see on like big mining shovels. Oh, cool. Now I'm talking the ones that are in the south that are like as big as a house, the okay. really, really big yeah. shovels that could pick up your car in the shovel. I like think they, that's called a shovel. That's... No, it's called a shovel. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's called a mining shovel because it's not. it doesn't dig like... The arm is reversed, so instead of coming down, uh-huh. like as, and if scooping you were to, towards you, it, it, it goes, scoops bottom up. Yeah, and it scoops bottom up, and then it just dumps it in. I would call one that scoop mining machinery. It's called a shovel. Shovel. That okay. is the proper. But he made all the wiring harnesses for those. He designed all the wiring wow. harnesses, and uh, so he would always harp on me, like if I did anything wrong with wiring, he's like, "Well, don't do it that way. You've now compromised that wire, and it's prone to failure." Because I would like stick the probe in to see it's, if something had twelve volts. That's what I was doing exactly. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. He didn't. He didn't like that. So anyway, so this guy was. I was supposed to meet with him yesterday, okay. and then he called me. He's like, "Yeah, I can't do it. Can you do it?" I'm like, "Well, I can't do it. I took some time, some time aside to do this already." Mm-hmm. He's like, "Well, maybe next week, Friday." I'm like, that's like a week and a half. Do you want to sell this car? Like, what's he's Apparently like? He's not in he's a big like, rush. He goes, my life is more important than than your life, and I'm just like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, or basically, and I was like, well, okay, all right, well, okay, bye. You know, that's fine. I'll find something else. Yeah. And then there was another guy who had an eight hundred dollar, like three hundred. So uh, you are looking at pretty cheap, cheap cars. Yeah, cheap. Yeah. Well, these are all cheap. All the old. Here's the weird thing: is all these old Mercedes cars are really, really cheap. And here's why: they're so they're ugly. They are not a. Tr- some of them are. Some of them are. Yeah. I know you don't like them, but yeah. there's so many of them on the road still. Tons. Tons. Because yeah, they are quality. They're I mean, high they're- quality. Um, a lot of them were hand built. Some of the even older ones were hand. Huh. You know, I mean, they're extremely high quality cars. The 300D, the W123 chassis is like one of the most bulletproof, if not the most bulletproof chassis and car ever made. They all will regularly go three, four hundred thousand, a million miles if maintained. without ever rebuilding the engine they are absolutely incredible dead reliable and they would survive the apocalypse they have no electronics whatsoever like i (laughs) said everything's vacuum (laughs) because everything's vacuum but you can fix vacuum you don't need electricity to fix vacuum you can roll it down a hill get it going and you don't even need a battery really to start the vehicle which is pretty cool um yeah so anyway then there was another one up in saint michael it was like a hundred dollars and i was like nope 
guess I'm not going to go get that one either because I messaged in the morning, hey, is this available? Yes, it's available. Five minutes later, I'm like, hey, I'd like to come take a look when works for you. I can come this afternoon. This afternoon rolls around. I can come this evening. This evening rolls around. I can come tomorrow. Like He's like, dude, I can't, I can't show it to you till the end of next week. I'm like, why is that a problem for you? Because it's like a week and a half that I have to wait to see a car. How is anybody like able to sell a car you, doing that? Are you in a rush? I, I don't have patience for this. <laughs> that's for sure. It is, admit that it's a little ridiculous to wait a week and a half when it could take like 20 minutes to show someone a car. I don't it's it's kind of like, come I've on. I've probably been guilty of doing that, though. A week and a half? Cars. Sure. Like, I'm I available just, in a week and a half? I mean, that's a little extreme. You're right. Okay. I mean, a couple days, no problem. Two, three, four days, right. not a big deal. Everybody's got lives. But a week and a, you can't find a time to meet to sell this car in a week and a half. You may, you don't want to sell the car that bad. You're not right. that motivated. And then I'm not. That's what it comes Not down that to. interested in buying it anyway. So that's all that's been going on with me. I haven't touched anything else. I haven't done anything else with cars, nothing. So, okay. Oh, I did go look at, the, at a Land Rover. And yeah, that LR4. The LR4. I just, it had some body damage on the side like just 2010 a, I think yeah you it was said? 2010 and it had scuffs all over the side okay and the deal just wasn't good enough and yeah. i and i kind of like i don't know when land rover started feeling really plasticky yeah they are but like i open and shut the door i'm like Ugh. like it's just like all the everything is all this silver painted plastic what and ab- nothing felt good what about the range rovers at that time period those are affordable too aren't they i don't even know I honestly don't. This was easy because then I could just trade it back into Westside, right. avoid all the rigmarole, and then like get a good deal on this thing before it went on their website and before it went over to service and got an oil change and new tires and everything else that makes it expensive. Yeah. So I could have gotten a good deal on it, but it just Wasn't, like the like I felt the seats. Like I always thought like Land Rover, Jaguar, all those always had really nice leather. Right. And I went in like I felt it. It was cold, of course, but it still felt like leather crinkly. At, crinkly i don't know just nothing it just didn't do it for me so yeah it just wasn't wasn't what i was after so that's it so speaking of lack of batteries like that mercedes on my way over here you I, are what is with you with batteries i know well no so i i was mentioning that my truck battery was going out so i finally went over to just batteries plus over here because there's one right by my house and i know they can test it so i go over there and this really uh, interesting older guy who looks like he's been around forever, knows his stuff. He comes out with the battery tester, hooks it up. He goes, excuse my French, but holy fuck. I was like, oh? He goes, so your battery should have right around a 700 cold cranking amps. <laughs> it has 70. How did you get here? Because your oil is so thin from never changing it. You didn't have- <laughs> it's no problem. So he's like, yeah, we'll, we'll take care of this and got a new battery. So that was good. It was under warranty? No. Oh. No, it was the original battery. And what year is this thing? 2009. It was wow. a nine-year-old battery. You know what's crazy is my grandpa, the electrical engineer, right. swear by, swears by the little trickle chargers yeah. that you plug into the wall and put yep. on a battery. He's like, I have, you know how lawnmower batteries are just junk? They're terrible. Okay. They're terrible. Like little lawn, you don't have a riding lawnmower, <laughs> so you don't know this, but they're they're always dead. They always wear out. Like last like two years. He you got to have the turn, the shut off on them. That's what, growing up, I always had riding lawnmowers, and we just always, you lift the seat and turn the battery back on instead of Fine. keeping it there. Then because, you never have a problem. Because then, because they suck. That's why you right. have to do that. Okay. My grandpa has, a, a like, one of these big skag mowers with the little levers, and it's, like, yeah, zero, zero turn. turn. Yeah. yeah. And he plugs it in every time he's done using it, okay. and he's got the original battery for it, and the thing is 15 years old. Yeah, I believe it. 15 years old, and he just, all he does is, boop, boop. 
and, this, it, and it desulfates the batteries, the the lead plates in there or whatever. And yep. you just it just you got to maintain working. these things. It's crazy. And this is why this guy's working with. He was just like one of these cool guys who like he's a character. He has stories for everything and just interesting and super friendly. He, he was like telling me about the warranty this battery comes with. He I goes, thought you were gonna say he's telling me about the war. I was no like, oh, here we go. <laughs> How old is this guy? <laughs> yeah, he could have been. Uh, no, but he was like, oh yeah, you can't bring it in next year if it has one volt on it. Then I know you screwed it up or something to that effect. And he was like, if you buy, if you bring a puppy home, you have to feed it. This battery you need to maintain. So it's exactly what you were talking about with your grandpa. Like you have to make sure it stays charged. You can't just drain it out and leave it for two years. And right. So yeah, that was interesting. That's what uh, when I bought. I went and bought the a Porsche battery, like an actual Porsche battery that fits in the right spot. Oh. It slides right into the cubby you exactly not where it's supposed Odyssey to go. The Odyssey that is super lightweight and looks really nice. Well, this nice. is a pretty small battery. Okay. Anyway, so I go over to uh, the Porsche dealership. I buy the Porsche battery, and he goes, you can't just, in the wintertime, you can't just leave this battery connected. You have to disconnect it, yeah. take it out, or do something with it. It's, it's an older, you know, it just doesn't, it's not like a new battery where you can just leave it plugged in and just roll with it he's like you have to maintain this battery right because it was the one where you take the thing out and like let fill the water up and everything oh sure sure so yeah just have to maintain them the legit old lead acid battery but it works great it's never you know never left me stranded and ironically it's still (laughs) i only did that the first year i disconnected it in winter yeah and otherwise i just i've just left it i mean if you drive your car all the time you don't need to because then it maintains no but it's a winter car it's a summer car so it sits for five months you probably should i probably should but i i probably should but i have not although i have every once in a while i do put i have so many batteries from so many different things that i have that little trickle charger so i move it around and let it do its thing so that's probably why it's been okay yeah um moving right along here i so i don't even know when we're going to get to this but i'm going to tease our next history story that i have for you because we have a guest today i think you said we have another guest lined up next week i don't know if it's for sure it is for sure for sure yep okay it's John Oates. He's a of Hall and Oates. He's a big Porsche guy, and he just had a 356 built by Rod Emery. So I want to talk to him about um, that's going to be not only the car, cool. but why what what his passion is with cars, and also I want to know what it's like to build a car with Rod Emery. You know, what's the process like? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Okay, so maybe after the week after next, we're going <laughs> to talk about a prancing horse unearthed prancing horse unearthed i'm just teasing it because you may know this story i I do know the story at least i think i do but yes that'll be december uh in in mid-december that episode will be out (laughs) don't get too technical yeah yeah whenever it does yeah um also be sure to check us out on patreon.com slash overcrest you can be the first to hear new episodes as soon as record them uh, occasionally we do live streams for you. You can also get some really cool swag from us for $5 a month. You get a free t-shirt for $10 a month. You get the t-shirt and a signed print. Well, it's not exactly a free your... t-shirt because you are paying something. So it's not free. You're right. <laughs> but anyway, you, w- when you give us the money, it's really helping us out. You know, it helps keep the lights on over here a little bit. And, uh, and we really love the our, support. Our Christmas lights. Oh, I'm still kicking your ass in the Christmas light contest. I'm over here. I've got my whole mic stand is lit up <laughs> festively, and yours is over there dark and scr- it looks like black coal. Right. Yeah. That's what I got for Christmas. So I f- here's what we're going to do with the Christmas contest. What's that? So I will wear a shirt that says whatever you want it to say, and whatever you want it to say, if you win, whatever you want it to say, I'll wear it. I'll wear it out. We'll go somewhere. We'll go out for drinks. I'll wear the shirt. And if I win, you have to wear a shirt that says Chris is always right. Wherever we want to go. Okay? 
Okay, and do then are we or... going to make like a big ordeal? We're going out somewhere. Or... Yeah, we'll do that, or we'll do a okay. live. We'll do a live stream thought, on the podcast I... and have it point directly at your shirt yeah. for the whole episode. I so thought... it's like Chris is always right, or you can have it say, "I'll wear a shirt that says sometimes I'm wrong." Or something, you know, like. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I like. Oh, that's like the worst <laughs> thing you can imagine. <laughs> okay, that'll be fun, and we'll post about that on social media as well. My original idea was we had to wear a Christmas dress. Yeah, but I don't want to wear a dress, and it's <laughs> I don't want I don't want to do that. That's that's just not gonna work. All right, well we'll figure it out. All right, we're gonna be right back. We're gonna take a break, and when we come back, we'll have Michael Rupert here to talk about his adventures. All right, we're back with Michael Rupert here. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, nice to be here. It's nice to have you. I mean, I remember when we met up on that rooftop and we started talking about adventuring, and it occurred to me then that eventually I would probably have you on the podcast from okay. from that moment when you started talking about everything that you uh, that you've done, and it's it's really impressive and inspiring. And that's I'm hoping this episode will inspire other people's to other people, other people's <laughs> other people <laughs> to kind of do what what you've done or, you know, even small adventuring in their own way to just to get out there and do things. Um, well, it doesn't have to be a big thing. This is uh, this is an adventure for me. I've never done a podcast, so I'm a little nervous. It's just like going on a big trip. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> there's probably less danger involved here. It's a lot less windy. Nobody's blowing you over. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'll get a flat tire today, but it should be okay. So, um, what? How did this? How did this start with you with uh, with the adventuring? What what instilled this desire to get out there and go do something like this? That's a great question. I don't know if I have an easy answer. I'm not exactly sure where it came from, really. I, I've always ridden bikes all my life and did a little bit of racing when I was a kid, like everyone did. And then when I moved to California, I did some desert racing and then some desert rides and then some pleasure rides. And there's always about, well, let's go see somewhere else or what's over that hill or what's over that mountain. Let's go somewhere. Else. Let's go camping this weekend. And it kind of grew from that, and I met some other people that had similar interests, and it's like, well, let's go on a three-day adventure. Well, let's go on a five-day adventure. Let's go on a 10-day. And, you know, it just kind of expanded from there. Did it feel kind of like almost like it was like a drug, like you had to go more and do farther to get the same <laughs> experience and the same thing out of it? Like, first you do the one day, and you're like, man— Next time you're like, well, I can't only go one day. I already did that. And then pretty soon you're at five days. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, I'd like to do 60 miles. And then pretty soon you're doing 10,000 miles. Was it kind of like? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, you're right. It is a little bit that. But at the same point, you know, I can go out and take a Sunday morning drive or take the safari out, you know, on a dirt road for a weekend and have a really great time. But, yeah, in the back of your mind, you're always going, well, I need something a little bigger. I want something that's a little more of a challenge. So how did this um, Columbia Ushia is? How do you pronounce the other word Ushaya? Ush the other country Ushaya Ushaya. So how did this Columbia to Ushaya um, expedition sixty five? How did that come to be, and how did you get involved with it? Well, it started probably about four years, no, two years before the. Well, let me back up a bit. Two thousand and ten. That's when I did a ride with a guy named Jim Hyde. Puts it on a couple times a year. From he calls it the Continental Divide ride, and it's it's almost border to border along the Continental Divide. You start in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and go to Helena, Montana, all on dirt roads. 
mostly all on BMW GSs, uh, the 1200s. So that's like a 10 or 12 day trip. So that's how I met Jim. And Jim runs the only BMW certified off-road training academy in the U.S. Yeah, it's in Southern California, outside of L.A., and he does Colorado in the summer for a few months, has a place set up there. So did you take the so, class? No, I haven't. That's funny. I've done a lot of rides with Jim, but I've never <laughs> taken any of the classes. <laughs> Shh, don't tell him. <laughs> I, need to, I need to sign up and do those. But it, he did – one thing I've always followed is uh, Dakar, back when it was a Paris to Dakar. You know, I was just fascinated with that. That just – to me, that was like the pinnacle of racing. And, you know, I wanted to do it when I was a kid, and, you know, that never came to pass. But – Jim was doing little tours, follow the Dakar, when it moved to South America. So I did that in 2012, um, the 2012 Dakar in Argentina, Chile, and Peru. And we spent a couple of weeks following the race, riding some of the transition routes with the riders and you know watching them start some mornings and staying where they stay. I mean, we obviously couldn't stay in the bivouac, but would camp nearby or stay in a house nearby or something. And that was an absolutely great trip. And that was my first time riding outside the U.S. So what did you think of these guys that were doing this race as oh, you watched them? What they're was Iron Men. They're <laughs> like gods. I mean, those guys, they're just so incredible. It's like doing 12 or 13 Baja 1000s day after day after day after day. What's well, the I physical requirement of doing something like that must be off the chart? Oh, they are. And and to see the cars and you see the big trucks, it's just, I'm still amazed by that. And I still think it's kind of cool that Porsche won it, what, 1984? Yeah, they did. Mm -hmm. um, so when we were doing that ride, Jim kind of had a little thing. He goes, well, you know what we should do is a Continental Divide ride version in South America. So we did that two years later. And I don't know, there were five or six of us. And... Um, started in Peru and Lima and went south and just kind of rode along the mountains. And there were a few little highlights in there. It's like, well, we're close. We got to do, uh, you know, death road in Bolivia and we got to do uh, Machu Picchu and we got to do a couple of places like that. So was this, was this one a little, the first one there, was that a little looser in terms of uh, planning and everything like that? Yeah. And it was shorter yeah, it was a lot easier in a lot of ways. And we had some locals, a couple of guys in Argentina that helped Jim do the Dakar rides. And so they kind of followed along and they did a lot of the planning. So I didn't have to do anything. I'd show up and get on a bike. It was easy. It sounds like the way to go. Although I have to admit yeah. that I really <laughs> like planning routes. I like when I, with the 9-11 stuff that I've done just in the United States, I, I really geek out over like the route planning and everything like that. I, I really, I really enjoy that. So, um, every trip needs someone like you There's <laughs> got to be a person like you involved because it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. I've got some pretty crazy routes planned out that I want to do someday and I've got them saved <laughs> like probably five or six things that I'd like to go and do that are just waiting. They're just there. I'm just, I'm ready. I know where I'm staying. I've got the campgrounds. I've got everything. It's all, it's all dialed in. So tell us a little bit about, um, the start of the, of this ex expedition 65 well when we were on the continental divide ride jim 
there were three of us kind of chatting one day. I don't know if it was over a beer in the evening. I don't remember. I That's think how we it just always starts. Take a break. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Makes for a better story. Yeah, it was over the second beer <laughs> on a cold night. Usually it's past the, the uh, second. I'm thinking this. This <laughs> the this, second case maybe. The seriousness yeah, of this exactly. adventure was probably five something or six like beers. That. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, he said, you know, what I'd like to do is a ride down to Ushuaia, the southernmost city in the world. You know, let's go the further south we can go on a road. And uh, he goes, I've always planned trips like this and helped put them on for people, but I've never done a ride where I'm not in charge. So that's a great idea. I'd love to do that. You know, maybe be 30 days and blah, blah, blah. And we kind of let it go. Well, about six or eight months later, I get a call from Jim and one of the other guys that was on the trip, and he goes, let's plan a ride. Let's ride top to bottom South America. Maybe it'll take three months. So, okay. Well, you know, we're kind of all young and dumb, so, well, not so young. But <laughs> like, yeah, that sounds great, sure. <laughs> so we decided Jim put together a list of people that he would like to go, and I think that was one of the brilliant things that he did. It was a really great group of people. Um, it's tough to put together people that are going to get along and have similar abilities, and, and they're okay to travel with, and, you know, don't freak out, and you, you never want to be that guy. You know, we all, you kind of have a saying in a group, if by the fourth day you haven't figured out who the jerk or asshole is, it's probably you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and, and you don't want to be that guy. And we didn't really have any of those that guys. So does that mean it was so, you in that case? <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm still waiting on that. <clears throat> no one's told me yet. It might be. <laughs> so a year and a half before we were going to start to write, we figured, look, at Southern Hemisphere, we've got to go in the fall. We want it to be spring to warming up. You look at the weather. Okay, it needs to be September, October, November kind of trip. And we decided we need to treat this. There's no one that's doing a tour, and there's a lot of planning involved. So let's get together and have a little business meeting. So a year and a half before, we all decided Denver was a convenient place. We all flew into Denver for a day and sat in a little conference room in a Holiday Inn and started at 8 o'clock in the morning and treated it like a business. Okay, who's going to – let's start planning the route. Where would we want to go in an ideal thing? And how long would it take? And how are we going to get the bikes there? And who's doing shipping? And what about repairs and logistics and tire and oils and all the stuff that we need? And how, what would be a dream trip? So we started working on that and just sat there with maps and some people – one we had a guy along, Colin, who I've traveled with. He was with me in Australia this last time, and he's like you. He's one of the, he's perfect at route planning and doing GPS routes that we can download, and loves to get into maps and where we can go. So it started from there, and there were about ten people. And we realized it can't be a large group. It's it's a difficult traveling with too many people. It's just too hard. Well, you guys already had that van that you had with everything was just so full. (laughs) Well, we decided to bring one of those. We built that for the trip. Jim had it built, which we totally trashed by the end of the trip. (laughs) The doors were about blown off in Patagonia. I mean, one was folded all the way back, so the hinges were built. When you open the door in 70-mile-an-hour winds, it's like, oops, (laughs) not a good idea. (laughs) The... uh, (laughs) 
That was kind of funny. Um, if it's not your fan, it's funny. <laughs> so the um, couple of guys dropped out, couldn't commit to the time. And we were sitting there during that day. Well, what are we going to call this ride? You know, let's come up with a name. Sitting here looking at a map and someone went, well, you know, we're going through 65 degrees of longitude. Okay, well, let's call it Expedition 65. And it just turned out that we did it in 65 days. That was wow. a little stroke of luck. We One thought degree it would a day. 65 or 70, yeah. And uh, then we... You know, different guys worked on customs, getting our bikes there. We decided... Well, how, uh, let me ask you about the customs and everything like that. How was it going from border to border with some of these countries? Because obviously all the rules are different and stuff like that. What was the what was the planning involved with that? Oh, it's a pain in the butt. Everything <laughs> is just, excuse me. But, you know, every, you're right. Everyone's different and different border crossings in the same country are different. Some will be large and busy and have computers and connected to the internet and you'll go to somewhere else. I remember in Bolivia and I God, we were above 16,000 feet. It's one of the highest in the world. You're struggling to get your breath and there's guys recording it, you know, with in a little journal, you know, handwriting a little line thing in there and going through your documents and one at a time and it may take an hour. You just you just don't know. Uh, there was another bad one between Chile and Argentina, and we had found out someone had told us, and again, I don't remember, a service station or maybe a restaurant or something, that, well, the university students are protesting in Santiago because they want free college education and the government doesn't pay enough. So the border people, the government employees, are also shutting down, and the border's going to shut down to honor their protest. So now they're only going to be open three hours a day, an hour in the morning, an hour in the middle of the day, and four to five o'clock. And if you didn't get there in that time frame, you're too, stuck. Too bad. Wow. Yeah, too bad. Too bad for you. So um, <laughs> there was another funny thing we learned. Don't ride with a custom plate. Don't ride with your plate that says, you know, cool 911 or one of the guys <laughs> on, the, on his uh Bike had a plate that said Dakar. That was a nightmare in some of the countries. They didn't understand why it didn't have numbers in it. And I remember in Ecuador, they couldn't put letters in the computer system to get through. Well, that's funny because Jake like here hours. always has all of his cars say exactly what they are on his on I'm, his I'm license. A fan of the vanity plates. Like his van, his like he has an H three. <laughs> it just says H three on it. He's got a nine eleven. It says seventy two nine eleven or seventy nine eleven on his his Audi. Says Audi RS four on it. <laughs> so this guy is going to have a lot of trouble in so South America. I, yeah, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> no, you need to rent, rent something, Jake, in South okay. America. <laughs> don't take those. And those, you know, those kind of things you you don't know until you go through it. That's. Part of the adventure. So what was probably the biggest challenge that you guys had to overcome on this journey? Ooh, biggest challenge. Besides the obvious, that you did it in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) The, uh, yeah, I don't know what the biggest, there were a lot of little challenges. I don't know if there was a Well, let me put it this way. What was, let me split it up a little bit. What was the biggest emotional challenge um, the thing that you struggled with mentally the most being on the trip? 
Uh, you know, it's the first few days. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm out of touch. I'm out of touch with the world. You know, you start and you're kind of near some big cities and you have some cell service. And then after that, it's like, well, I'm alone. I'm alone in my helmet. I'm riding around. Can't call anyone. Can't see what's going on. And you just kind of settle into the place. And once you get there, for some people get there a little faster than others, then it's really a joy because you just kind of embrace the day. And that's the best part about traveling like that. I don't care if it's in a car, bicycle, motorcycle, walking, whatever it is. It's like, well, it's a new day. The sun came up and I'm alive. What's it going to be? Not sure. I think I know, but you usually don't. <laughs> and, and what do you think was the, the biggest physical challenge that you guys faced? Uh, riding in some of the places was tough. Bolivia just... Bolivia was really tough. What was hard about uh, it? The altitude and the roughness. I mean, I'm sure there's a couple of paved roads in Bolivia. I don't remember Somewhere. any of them. <laughs> Somewhere. You didn't see them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think uh, just coming in and leaving the country, there were some paved roads. But wow. Bolivia, it's rough. And we were at the elevation. I mean, La Paz sits at, God, going into La Paz in the, late in the evening because we had gotten lost. Well, that was another nightmare. Just the traffic. I think there's 3 million people or something, and it's about at 12,000 feet. And then. <laughs> How do the bikes spent, handle that when you're driving around in that elevation? They, You're down on power. We figured you'd probably lose about 30%, something like that. Even with fuel and injection, that's a, crazy. Yeah, we spent a lot of time above, you know, 13, 14, 15,000 feet. I remember some one night we were about at 16, and I was just, I probably woke up 10 times during the night, and you just wake up just really dying to catch your breath. Hmm. It's like, God, I just got to breathe, just kind of relax a little bit, take some deep breaths, chill out. You actually have to remind yourself to breathe deeply to catch up. Like, you have to physically tell yourself, breathe, breathe more. <laughs> well, you can't get enough air. You're like going, God, man, I need some air. Wow. I need some air. Tell us a little bit about some of the winds that you ran into. Oh, God. Patagonia. That that word just, like, has a bad reaction. Do you wear any Patagonia, like, jackets or hats? Or are you just like, you're done? Actually, I think I have some Patagonia on today. And I love Patagonia clothes. Oh, what a Don't like the place. (laughs) It's, you know, it's absolutely beautiful. It's gorgeous. Wait, let me back up. I remembered one difficult thing while I was talking about Bolivia. Sorry to go backwards for no a problem. second. But we learned the first time, the first trip when we're doing the Continental Divide, it's not easy to get gas if you're hmm. a, quote, international, if you're not a citizen. And that became a problem in some places. You would pull into a gas station kind of in a little village or nowhere. And, well, a couple of times we pulled into one twice, I remember, and there was no power. It's like, yeah, we got gas, but no electricity. We don't know when it's going to be turned back on, so... You can sit here for a couple of days if you want. <laughs> and the uh, other places you would pull in, they wouldn't sell to you because they charge international people a different rate. It's all subsidized for locals, for nationals. Mm-hmm. They pay a rate that's about a third of what internationals pay. 
So they, but you have to fill out paperwork, and guys at the service station didn't want to do that, so they don't want to sell to you. So do you have to like and they'd be bumping oh. to someone else, and you're like, I need gas. No, too bad. So you just like catch somebody down any. the street and give them the money and have them go back and fill up gas tanks for you, or what do you do? Well, what you do is you find locals. There's kind of like a little black market underground thing where people poured gas at home and fill up containers, and they sell it to people on the side. How do you mm-hmm. get a hold of those guys? Uh, you you start asking around. Anybody have gas? No, anybody has gas? Yeah, I know someone, and we found this just charming, lovely couple in their 80s. The guy was, they lived in this home behind this kind of mud brick wall, about six feet high, so you couldn't see, and you go back... And this guy was wonderful. He'd worked in the mines all of his life, was a mechanic. He had a beautiful Toyota FJ that he was restoring back there that looked like it was brand new. And he had probably had 20 five-gallon containers of gas around, and he would just sell it. And, you know, he bought it for six bars and sold it to us for 12 or whatever. And we were absolutely thrilled. And he and his wife went around and filled up each one of our bikes, and she was offering us a little something to eat and... He had a couple little rocks he'd save from the mines that he wanted to take as a present. Oh, that's it was awesome. wonderful. Hmm. It was a great experience. It seems like when you go so to some of these more remote places, that food is really something that kind of gets people together. They always want to give you oh. food. It's like food is like the great unifier. It is. And that's. I think that's one of the best things about traveling is just meeting the people. They want to tell you about where they live. They want to give you something to eat. And they want to hear about your life. And... It's not, you know, this isn't a new idea, but I think if people traveled more, we'd have a whole lot less problems in the world. You just went around and visited some other people in other places and see how they live. Yeah, even, I don't even know that people visit their neighbors anymore, let alone <laughs> travel as, as much isn't as... Isn't that the truth? Yeah. So, I know, I don't know who lives two doors down from me. I've never seen the people. Yeah, me either. So tell us a little bit about Patagonia. Patagonia, God. I have a love-hate relationship with Patagonia. Love the place. It's beautiful to look at, but it's it, everyone knows the winds in Patagonia are a little tough. It's constantly windy. And there are little signs. You know, we have signs here in the U.S. Here's a deer crossing or watch out for cattle or whatever. Down there, they have looks like bent trees all the time <laughs> alongside the road on wow. the sign. Yeah, it's windy here. Well, we happen to be just... Unfortunately, we didn't know this, but there was a large storm there, and a windstorm, and it had done some damage in a couple of towns. Well, we ended up having to ride through this. And the skies looked fairly clear, but there were 65, 70-mile-an-hour wind gusts and wow. constant probably 50-mile-an-hour. And you start riding down Route of 40, which is the main corridor down to the southern part, and it's a gravel road. It's a graded gravel road. It's in pretty good shape but bikes don't when you lean a bike over into the wind on a gravel road and the gravel slides out from under you mm-hmm. so you ride about 10 feet and get blown over and you ride about 100 yards and get blown over so how so far are you traveling kind of like, in a day when you're dealing with this stuff you're trying to get a couple hundred miles wow so there was a period where we just left the bikes fall over and went and leaned against a pile of dirt off to the side it was about four or five feet high you had your helmets and jackets and everything you didn't take anything off because all the dust and crap would just blow in your face and we just sat for about four hours tried to take a nap 
kind of said, until the wind died down. It's like, until the wind dies down, we're not going anywhere. What do these bikes weigh when you're picking them up and over and over again? What, how much, what are you dealing with? That's a, I don't know what they weigh, probably 400 pounds or something. I don't know. The big bikes are heavy bikes. Right. You kind of have to pick them up. There's a little technique to use your legs and lean against it. And but you're doing this over and learn. over and over again after you just got oh, thrown off. It gets old. You're like, okay, I want to go home. This part isn't fun. <laughs> Where's the fun part? Where's the good food and beer? I don't want this part. Yeah, I want to be inside. Didn't that contrast of that give you? Didn't that give you contrast of the rest of the trip though, and how wonderful some of the other parts were? Yeah, it's it does. That's the beauty. All those the little hardships are what makes for great memories and great stories. Sometimes during the time going through it, you're not having a whole lot of fun but you know in the back of your mind you're going well and would even say this out loud out loud sometimes well this will make a great story <laughs> so um how do the bikes handle all of this like as you as you're driving and you, they're they're falling over and they're getting beat up and i'm supposed there's rocks getting kicked up from underneath the front tire into the into the into the crankcase like how are how <laughs> did you guys do anything to the bikes to strengthen them up a little bit or did you leave them factory what was no, you never leave them factory. You, and you hit on a great thing about the rocks being kicked up. Everyone puts an aftermarket skid plate on some protection on the bottom. There are a couple companies that make really good, strong ones because that's a really important thing. So did you guys and have any you, failures? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The I would guess in rough terms, I think we broke three or four wheels. We... A couple of frames broke Wow! just from fatigue in some places. Uh, light mounts broke, bag mounts broke. Uh, I think there were three suspension failures, like two or three rear shocks and one front shock. Wow. I was reading in the and, book that some guy drove like a thousand miles with no rear shock. Mm-hmm. That, I mean. <laughs> yeah, you, you know. That, Sounds bouncy. Well, we, got some, we had some great advice at the beginning from... Scott Brady, and he publishes a magazine, Overland Journal, which is a really beautiful book for quarterly magazine for people to do overlanding in cars and vehicles, mostly covers some bike stuff. Scott's traveled all around the world, done the seven continents in one vehicle. So he said, you know, on a trip like this, you need to pair up and kind of have a buddy. So if someone gets injured and we had a broken leg on the trip, or if someone or if a bike breaks down, that the whole group doesn't stop. You can't stop going to that goal or you never get there. So if someone breaks down, they and their buddy are going to stay behind and figure out how to get it fixed or how many days or whatever it, it takes. The Like that instance with when Bill, when his rear shock busted, and it was a second time, too. He had it repaired once, and it went, well... It was a day's ride, I think, to Santiago. He could get one shipped from somewhere in Peru or or maybe it was Brazil. I don't know. It came to Santiago. So he had to get there. So someone rode with him. For most of the time, he rode a little bit by himself. And so he broke off from the group. And it's like, well, we're going to keep getting forward. You know we're kind of going to be here. We hope we see you again. <laughs> and that's kind of how, how it goes. And he went, and it took him a day. It's funny. It was the same protest, the government protesting in Santiago, shipping department. You know, was closed for customs was closed for a day. It took him an extra day or two to get the shock. He changed it in the FedEx parking lot. 
and then caught up to us. Hmm. Man, he must have been riding so, like hell to catch up. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like whatever. So and I, there were a couple of times where we got separated like that, where the group, three guys, you know, there were probably three different groups that would ride together during the day. It was kind of normal. You couldn't all travel 12 at once. Plus, some guys are faster than others, and some people want to stop at everything and take a picture. Other guys just kind of want to mosey on. Sure. Hmm. So I talked and, to uh, uh, the photographer. Some from... of them. No, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say sometimes we'd get separated and people take a wrong turn, and you'd see them two days later. Like, wow. well, oop, I ended up in this town. Well, we're over in this town. Well, okay, look at a map. We'll meet you down here in two days. How were you able to communicate if you're a few towns over and you said a lot of times you don't have cell service? I mean, do you just wait until you can give them a call or? Yeah, it was that. And some people, you know, a great little thing to have on a trip like this is a Garmin inReach because you can text. They're great little tools. And you can text from your phone. They'll sync with your phone so you can send a text through the satellite. Sure to someone else yeah it's really limited but, but it gives you a little bit of communication just so you can right right let somebody know that you're not dead <laughs> basically yeah, yeah exactly so i you talked to the phone. photographer um of the book uh expedition 65 and he told me to ask you about payaska or palaska oh man what did fonz want about payaska yeah i did don't he know say- he didn't he just said ask him about payaska if you don't know that's cool he just he said, "Ask him about that." It could that. have been that was one of the toughest roads coming out of there. I remember there were a couple really roads that were, um, well, I can't use the language that was used, but it was like "don't screw up" kind of roads. We'd kind of have a meter. It's like this road is where you had to pay attention every single second because where you'd be off a cliff, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that was, like, one of the most spectacular, beautiful roads and rides I've ever been on. It was just, it was kind of amazing. It was really amazing. I was more fascinated. I was thinking about, who built this damn thing? How <laughs> hell they hang off the side of the road and chisel out a road? Whose idea was it to come down here in the first place? <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So, so speaking of the, the bikes, have you always been a BMW guy? I know you all rode GS1000s, is that correct? GS 1200. 1200s, yeah. okay. Even bigger. Yeah. And um, have you personally always been a BMW guy, or, you know, I know no, there's a lot of adventure bikes out there. They, they're just, the, they're really the best for that. I love KTMs, still ride some KTMs off-road. Um, there are other good bikes, but they really take a beating better than anything else. They really do. And that's hmm. saying a lot, considering that you guys still had failures and problems with what yeah. you guys consider the best anyway. It's just like the terrain and the roads will always win. It's just how you personally and mechanically fight through it to get to your goal anyway. Yeah, that's – and you're exactly right. Your Things are going to happen. It's like how you deal with it. And the great things about these small communities, they're used to fixing things. There's hmm. look, there's some guy in town that can pound out a wheel and, and weld aluminum or weld – there's someone that can fix something. They you have to. Find the guy. They don't have a choice. Yeah, exactly. They don't run the storm by a new one. Good old resourcefulness. So that's the cool thing. There was always somebody that could fix something. You just had to find the fixer guy. 
And Michael, I'm sure it's no uh, accident that you're all riding the exact same model of bike. Did you ever have to kind of share parts or say, well, this shock's broken, so I'm stealing one of yours? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll take all your good stuff. You wait right here. I'll be back with a new one. <laughs> so if you had one takeaway from the entire trip, what would you? What would it be? Oh, one takeaway. Just something you'd know. like to let people know, you know, whether they should do it or not. or, or go, what, do, what, go do something. Plan something and don't go. It's not a new idea. Just do it. I, coming back from, I rode with a couple of the same guys in Australia last month. We rode a month um, in Australia. And it, we all came, you know, we were talking, what's the next ride? We've got to get the group together for a bigger ride. And one of the guys is riding the Silk Road next May. And they rode, a couple of the people rode through Mongolia for a couple of weeks earlier this year. And there started to be this kind of sense of like, wow, there's so many great things to do. I got to get, I got to get something done. I got to get gone. You know, how can, and I kind of feel that now. It's like, man, I need another, I want another safari adventure. It's a (laughs) 9-11. I got to go ride this. You know? Yeah. That's Was that wanderlust is what that is. There you go. That's wanderlust right there. Um, so Time, the clock is ticking. I got to do something. I need to win the lottery or marry rich or something. You know, <laughs> someone needs to fund these things. So, speaking of your safari, do you think it would make? I was thinking about this. Do you think the safari on the route that you went would make it? Oh, ninety percent of it. Bolivia might beat it to death because there was some deep sand and some really bad washboards and rocks that. It would be a true test. Let's put it that way. The washboarding is what really throws test. me on some of the gravel roads in the 911. The washboarding is just killer. You just you just oh. feel like you're just abusing and beating the hell out of everything. Well, it feels like your teeth are going to fall out. On a bike, you know, it must be crazy. There's no, no weight, no weight to soak up any of the bumps. Yeah. So what is uh, what is building a safari with with Lee Keen like? When you built your car, how did that process go? What was what was that like? Well, they, you know, when I first saw the car, I was like, it really spoke to me because it's to me it looked like, oh, here's a GS, here's a four wheel GS. Hmm. I want one of those things, and um, it's great thing Lee found the car for me while I was in South America on this trip, and I remember the day like it was yesterday. We we were probably two weeks into the trip. And I think we were at the edge of Colombia. Maybe we were into Ecuador by then. And we had seven or eight days of rain, you know. And it, I'm sorry, but it just gets old after a while. <laughs> it's like, shit, you're wet. Everything's wrinkled. It's like, I would just, I want to dry out for a little bit. So you're plugging along, and we'd come to this gas station, and we were filling up. And it was on the, this higher elevation. And, wow, I had cell service. Looked down at my phone, and there was... A voicemail from Lee, and it was Lee saying, hey, I found your car, because I'd told him before, it's like, I'm gone for a couple of months. If you find a car, and it's within a certain price range, and I can afford it, buy the car, get started. He goes, okay, I'll keep my eyes out. And I just remember that day he found a car. I was so happy. It's like, wow, it's like it's not even raining today. This is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) This is so cool. So he got the car and had it shipped from California to him in Georgia before I got back. The car was here, and so he made it really easy. 
really easy. And working with Lee's such a great guy. I mean, come on, it's that was such an easy process. And he knows how to do it, and he has the right people involved, and there's really not a lot to do. You've got a few decisions to make, but not many. So what do you think would be the biggest difference between doing it on a bike versus doing it in a car? Let's say you could skip Bol- Bolivia and <laughs> go around or whatever. Um, would you do something like this in a car, do you think? Yeah, could I do both? <laughs> That'd be so cool. You could go north to south on a bike and south to north in a car. There you go. Let's that do would, it. I'm in. That let's, would be awesome. Let's, That'd let's, be a great let's get trip. it done. Chris needs to put a lift kit on his 911 first. You'd be surprised. <laughs> you'd be surprised at how much I was able to do with how low my car is. I suppose you've had some adventure. I've had some serious. My, you the, have. Well, I've seen some of your pictures. You've got. To, you're in some great places. The, you're off the asphalt. The bottom of my car looks like a war zone. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Those are all good stories. Yeah. It's like when you get a scratch on something. It's a good story. Well, unless it's the the really kind of fat lady that leaned on my car on the ferry. When I was on Lake Powell's because she wanted a picture and she leaned on it and scratched it with her keys. I guess that makes for a cool story, it, too. It, you know, you got a story. Yeah, that's, for sure. true. that's true. That makes for a great story. Yeah. <laughs> You'll remember her. That's true. That is true. I'll remember her forever every time I wash the car. That's that's absolutely true. Well, man, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing the story with us. Is, uh, is there anything else you want to say before we let you go? No, go ride. Just go ride something. Go ride. Go drive. It's always a good day. That's, you know? what, that's what I tell people. I'm like, get out. I don't care what people are exploring. I don't care if they're exploring their palate, going out to eat different foods. Just whatever right. it takes for you to get out and experience new things, whether it's driving, riding, eating, walking, anything, yeah. just get out there and just do it. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's the best advice you can give anyone. That's exactly right. If you're, if you're not doing any of that, you might as well be dying. That's how I, I, yeah. I feel so strongly <laughs> well, about it. Yeah. You kind of are. It's like there's no point in sitting still. You know, when you're dead, you can sit still. That's right. Well, thanks a lot, man. I I really appreciate you coming on. It was fun. Thank you. Yeah, take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Okay. See you. Bye. Well, that's pretty inspiring, I would say, to to say the least. Absolutely. Um, I, uh... I really long to do some of these bigger trips. And that's one thing, you know, I mentioned that when you start doing like little things, it really inspires you to do more and bigger things because you get addicted, as you said. And it's, it is, it's an addiction. And there's probably like an endorphin, endorphin, endorphin type thing and dopamine or whatever your body gets when it feels good. And I think when you're out experiencing these huge grand scale things that give you a sense of perspective on your own, your own personal self, like he said, when you're in your helmet, it's just you and everything that's there. And when you experience that... It's almost like uh, meditation in a way, I imagine. It is. Right? It, absolutely. And I, and I get that a lot while I'm driving and I'm somewhere and I, and, I, and I feel the scale of how small I am and how grand everything is. And it kind of gives you like some sort of perspective rather than just floating through life in an urban environment, you can really get out there and, and see the expanse and the contrast of, of everything around you. And it's not always... People are like, oh, why don't you go drive these crazy roads that are all super curvy and everything? I'm like, for me, it's not always about that. It's just about going somewhere, exploring and seeing Mm -hmm. things. And like he said, there's, you know, we just wanted to go on and see uh, what's over that hill over there. I get that all the time when I'm driving on these road trips. I'm like, whoa, look at that. I want to go there. So I'll turn off and go explore and and experience it and get out of the car. And, you know, some of the most amazing, uh, mesmerizing places that I've ever been are due to getting out of the car, exploring, making a mistake on your route, whatever. 
off the beaten path, per se. Off the beaten path, the road less traveled. (laughs) You know, however... All of these poems. The different fork in the road. So if you look over, you know, human history, centuries and centuries, you see all these... As you say that, you see poems and stories, and they, right. and they all center around exploring and doing new things and experiencing new things, and it's inspirational, and it's not by mistake. It's not by mistake. It helps, it helps you find meaning. Absolutely. Well, at the very least, perspective. I mean, I think to, to Michael's point about, you know, people, we would, have, we would have a lot less problems at the world if people would get out of their own little bubble and experience a different lifestyle or even talk to their neighbors as we talked about right yeah, absolutely I mean, it, it's just it's broadening your your horizons and your perspective and understanding people in the world so even beyond just the selfish sense of adventure i mean there really is intrinsic value to it yeah absolutely i agree with you so and with that uh, really deep philosophizing by overcrest let's get into some news let's explore the 992 porsche 911 <laughs> that was revealed today um so we're going to talk about what's new and maybe what's not new, mostly new, but somewhat not new well, as well. Yeah. So then, as uh, many of you may know, if you're listening to this today, because you're one of our awesome Patreon members, um, today the 911 Carrera S slash 4S, Crest on the S and the 4S, mm-hmm. um, were revealed at the Los Angeles Auto Show. Now, there's not too much different. As always, Porsche just kind of like incrementally improves, right. like like they've done for the last 55 years. Right. It's, it's little an, by it's little an by evolution little. of the model, not a revolution. Not a exactly. Total that's exactly it. Um, so instead of 420 horsepower, now it's got 440. Um, that's due to different turbocharger that, design. That 443, Sorry, I, Chris. I, I, I the didn't extra want, three. <laughs> leaving out three horsepower. They've got new <laughs> intercooling, new turbocharger stuff. Um, so that's allowing a new direct injection technology, apparently. Okay. But so I couldn't figure out what that meant. Did the 991.2, the previous gen, that one did not have turbochargers on just the, the S and 4S, did it? I don't believe so. Okay. I so don't. we're moving towards turbocharging. Well, for everything's sure. going to be turbocharged. Tur- well, it has or to be. If it's not electric, it's turbocharged. <laughs> it has to be. It ha- it, there's no, with, with the emissions requirements and octane that you they want to squeeze the, everything. Yeah, they want efficiency out. So it also has an eight speed PDK, Again, which is speed. new. Speaking of efficiency, yep, add another speed. gear in the, gear in there. That's right. And with the PDK, it shifts instantly. So the GT3 only has seven speed PDK. So we've the transmission has gotten a little bit better. Right. Um, the manual will, the manual will be, be manual manual the manual <laughs> transmission will be available soon. So um, is that going to be an eight speed manual? I have no because idea because they're still basing it off the PDK box, and so we had a seven speed manual in that before. Yeah, I remember so that. So now there's an eight-speed PDA. Is I'm it going to be man. an eight-speed? That's so many slots. It's going to be Fast and Furious-style shifting. It will be like it, one, two, it'll three, literally, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's insane. That's I, a lot. I bet it's a six-speed. No, they did a seven-speed before. Well, we'll see, I guess. Um, zero to 60 is three and a half seconds, up to 191 miles an hour. That's quick. Which is crazy. Quick. If you think... If you think about it, though, it's it's a hundred and thirteen thousand dollar car, right? So it's not it's a like supercar. It's a they're, they're supercars now. The Porsche is no longer <laughs> just attainable. by price. They're yeah. no longer attainable by by enthusiasts. So they have to compete like they, with like they used to be with other stuff. Um, it's still rear engine, which I'm I'm waiting for it to not to be a rear engine anymore. <laughs> um, well, the race car isn't anymore. Right. That's well. It's they don't call I it mid engine. They it's, call it a 
what oh it's like forward of rear yeah or forward like, of or rear. some like weird weird thing um you said it was gonna be heavier yeah well okay, but it might why? not be because you didn't you skipped over this it's almost two inches wider than the outgoing model right so they it's real similar to bigger like and bigger. gt3 this, this thing's a battleship it is but there's more aluminum so maybe it won't be okay. too much heavier but it is bigger i mean every model has gotten bigger That's silly. um it's got a retractable rear wing which is kind of weird when you look at it when it comes up. It's the whole... So I know on the Panamera, it goes up and then like two winglets kind of come out horizontally. I'm motioning This with my I hands. saw, and I I don't know if it's like a render or not. So you right. might want to take this for a grain of salt. But I saw the whole the whole rear thing behind the deck lid come up, like in a semicircle shape. It'd be like, like on our cars where the whole <laughs> deck lid just pops up, like <laughs> releasing the deck lid as your wing. Right, right. So the only... I have a couple problems with the, with the exterior. One is they made this... If you look at the top of the doors, right. there's like a line that goes over the fenders, and it's really subtle. Like, you can't really see it. It's almost like the fenders come to front a... Front or rear fender? Front. Okay. And it comes to almost like a, a point on the on the front so fenders. So instead of the rounded yeah, traditional... It's got a little bit of an apex to it. I'm not sure. Mm. I got to wait till seeing that in person, how that's right. going to look. And I don't like the George Foreman rear deck lid. <laughs> yeah. So to explain this, it's traditionally we've always had the slats on the rear grill go horizontal, right? right? Yeah. And so now they just made them slightly different going vertical or front to back. Yeah. And you're right. It looks like a grill. Yeah, it doesn't look right. I don't. I don't really like it. That and the interior is, uh, <laughs> the shifter looks like an, a vintage Braun razor. Like it's just <laughs> like it's bolted into the center console, and it looks like you could pick it up. And like, Maybe that's going to be the hidden feature. That is. Well, my grandpa shaves in the car all the time. On right. Road so trips. he just needs that. He needs it. And, Why? Uh, I don't. It just doesn't look right. It looks like it was like almost an afterthought. I know that's really a struggle to, for that design element because it just everybody's so cultured and. and uh, with the click with the button and you put it into drive, right? They grab it and err. So this is yeah. like it's gotta be tough design element to implement. So I imagine, to their credit. Because you're trying to remain true to kind of the classic feel of everything else, but right. not just have buttons. So or the Volvo has like what the, the, the dial. There's everybody's dial got a gear. different version. So you, imagine being like going from an Audi to a Porsche to a Volvo and, and a right. BMW, they're all gonna and Mercedes are all different. They're all trying to figure out you their know, way to it's make it interesting though. Mine are all the same. I've I'd swap cars all the time. Mine I just move the lever over and put it into first gear. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the center tack is still there. Okay. Like the, the typical right in the middle. Right. right. As it should be. As it should be. But it doesn't like, I, they didn't change the font, but the, they put a ton <laughs> of little lines in between each thing and it doesn't, it doesn't look right. And then they have um, next to that is digital displays. Of course, we have our digital display in our binnacle. Yeah, and I was talking to a friend, and he said, "Well, why don't they just make the tachometer a digital display too? That way, you could rotate it so that the red line, like everybody, clocks their gauges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You could rotate it, and then." (laughs) <laughs> so when you go into like race mode the tack just tilts the tack just Tilted automatically tack. turns that actually is a really cool idea yeah i don't know about that even actually it'd be even better if it wasn't digital and you hit race mode and the whole physical tack just turns yeah that would be sweet i i can see the tack either way the the amount of time it takes for my eye to drop down to look at the tack i know is like it's the same Right. I mean, it's the race guys did it because they wanted to be able to see it vertical they, they see it out of the corner of their eyes. So right. I'm sure. But none of us are Hans Stuck or anything like that. So it's, we, it's not I really. I don't pay attention to my red line. I just keep going. <laughs> I, oh, boy. I can. He, I just hear it. You just know. I know. Um, what else we got? The, they had this thing called wet mode. Okay. It's got sensors that... in the wheel well that detect moisture, and it changes the way the traction control 
So it's just Adjust. like automatic smart traction control now. Yeah. Because cars used to have kind of like a, a wet mode or a gravel mode or something else. So now it's just sensing. Yeah. Which, what happens if you go through like a car wash or something? I, like how long does it take to change the mode back? I don't know. Be like, we got wet. So now the entire drive is wet mode? I guess it could be. I'm sure there's probably some stuff. Maybe there's. I, it's such a kind of old school thought, but. This is just one more system to break. Oh, sure. Well, and if so, it breaks, it's not the end of the world. No, I know, but it's just so complex. It is ridiculous. This car is ridiculously complex. I don't like that. Think Chris. of all the screen. There's like a huge touchscreen in it. Half the cluster is digital. Why? I don't. I, I really am waiting to see what these things look like in 20 years. 20, 25, Right, because you're not going to be able to maintain them. Well, you'll be able to maintain them, but it might be cost prohibitive. Like, you're not buying a brand new instrument cluster. Well, look at the, the cars are $120,000 now. Right. So maybe the guy that's buying them can afford to replace the cluster if a pixel burns out. You know, we had a really interesting... Who was the photographer guest? Remind me, please. Uh, Peter. Peter. No, not Peter Laps. Um, the historical... Kurt. Kurt. Yeah, so Kurt said he liked to take pictures of the historic cars. Yep. Because if you take a picture of the newest F1 racer, next year no one cares about that photo. Because mm -hmm. it's just, you know, it's the latest and greatest last year. So it's right. no, longest, latest, no longer the latest and greatest. Are these cars trying to be the latest and greatest so much so that the classics are classic because... They represent a point in time, whereas these are just going to be. It, it's the same thing you explained well, you're just, you're with asking, the 959, right? Yeah, yeah. The 959 was the pinnacle of the time, and it tried so hard to be technologically advanced, but it's not as cool as an F40 because now the technology is outdated and it doesn't matter. Yeah, well, these cars will. This car will never be seen as iconic. Just right. a Carrera won't, just won't ever be a collectible car. Now, like a GT3 or a GT2 or a GT2 RS, GT3 RS, whatever. All that stuff, I think. Is such low production numbers that maybe it will just because of production numbers it'll be seen as something that's special. Yeah. You know, a lot of guys that really like the water cooled new stuff really do love GT3s. Oh, stuff yeah. like that. I mean it is You kind of the, fell in love with one too. Yeah, the fanboyism of them is real. Um speaking of fanboyism, one of the reasons that this is this car is still cool. Okay. Is the like we already talked about this, it's the incremental thing. So it's right. it they're it's it's tough for them to improve upon perfection over fifty five years. Yeah. So 55 years of the 911 existing, basically, right. give or take a year or whatever. And here we are. And yet it still looks like a 911. It's still the engine is still in the rear. I still think it's really cool that no other manufacturer can say that. And that's, I think, what makes the car so iconic and so special is they don't go crazy. Right. They don't right. go out of control. You know, as as my friend said, if it looked like a Corvette, all of a sudden everybody would be like, what the <laughs> hell? You know, so it's I, I think that's well, so we'll see where this car goes. We don't have any information uh, beyond that, that's all the information that exists. Well, I think it's going to be basically like the old one, except a couple new updates. What do you think of the way it looks? I just don't like how big they are. I mean, if we were to park our early cars next to these things, it's just like ridiculous how large they are. So wh why are you using devil's advocate here? Why are you using an outlier of your car, which is tiny, mm -hmm. rather than comparing the car in the to market modern, that it's in? Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's... You're, no, you're right. You're, I, it's, it's a, you're right. It's a critique on the entire industry right it's not a critique on porsche everything's yeah. gotten the big. other thing i have to remind myself though the 911 was never meant to be a sports car or it, uh what's the it's yeah, always meant to be i don't know if that's a true GT car so what's the difference between a gt car versus just like a really lithe lightweight like lotus did very small i think British that porsche wanted to make a porsche was pretty heavily into racing and they wanted a car right it's look a, at the way that the engine is designed where it can come out and no you're I mean, right they, but it's always been designed as a GT car. Right. 
Agreed. grand touring yeah. in the purest sense of a GT. So it's not necessarily supposed to be the lightest weight, high performance. It's meant to be more luxurious because that was going to be my criticism. Well, that's why you buy a GT3 RS. Right. Good point. You know, that's that's the, that's the car you're talking about. Right. You and know, they make that's the cool thing about this. And I've said this before. Is they make a 911 for exactly what you want to do. If <laughs> you want 57 they even, variations, they of even it. make a GT3 Touring, which is a GT3 with no wing. Right. You know, which they, is my favorite. Me too. And so they make, I don't like the Panini grill, the Panini press, the George Foreman. I can't get past it. It looks more aerodynamic, it. I guess. I right? don't know. The shape of the car is there. You know, it remains to be seen if it grows on me or not. I do like the rear end. The, the taillights have gotten kind of skinny. They're right, or like short. everything else is supposed yeah. to the so LED we'll strip. Here's here's the bottom line, though, Chris. None of this matters because neither of us can afford one. Well, you can. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. You can. You just got to sell a few of your cars. Yeah, that's true. So let's get into uh, GM. Now, if you've been looking at the news, GM is hugely in the news, whether you're into cars or not. So basically what's going on is um, they're closing five plants in America, seven plants total. And basically that's uh, they're they're killing the the Chevy Volt, the Chevy Cruze, the Impala, the Buick Cross, Cadillac XTS, the CT6, and the old Silverado. Obviously, they're coming out with a new Silverado, right. but it's a different but, plant. Yeah, so that's why they're so they're this shutting this down adds a plant. up to fourteen thousand jobs. That's a lot. That's of, a lot of jobs. It's a lot of people employed. So I'm going to read a uh, little bit of a passage that's got some quotes in it from Automotive News. Yeah. With gasoline prices falling and new electric vehicles beckoning, consumers are abandoning the conventional sedans that have defined the U.S. auto industry since the days of Henry Ford. Scarred by a financial crisis a decade ago, GM is moving unusually fast this time to reckon with the new reality. News Monday that GM would cut more than 14,000 jobs and, like Ford Motor Company, pull back from conventional sedans sent the company's shares up 4.8% and lifted other automaker stocks. Now, you know, if you listen to the podcast, you know, know that nobody's buying cars anymore. Right. Crossovers. Everyone's SUVs. buying a crossover. Yeah, yeah. The largest U.S. automaker may cut up to seven plants, five North America, and two unidentified plants elsewhere. Could you imagine working at a non-U.S. plant and wondering if your plant's the identified yeah, plant? unidentified. <laughs> <laughs> it's eliminating oh. unpopular sedan models during a time when auto sales remain brisk, a sign that CEO Mary Barra is making changes now before an economic downturn forces her hand. She says, in the past, GM management didn't react very quickly. They went through sort of a slow speed crash that culminated <laughs> in 2009 bankruptcy. And that's a lesson that was hard learned. Oh, this is, sorry, Marianne Keller, an mm -hmm. independent auto analyst in Stamford, Connecticut. Um, this is cyclical, highly competitive, slow-growing business. You can't continue producing unprofitable vehicles, especially when you're making crazy investments in mobility service businesses with no potential for profit in the foreseeable future. On top of this, Barra is plowing money into, the, into GM Cruise, the unit developing the automaker's self-driving technology, and is developing 20, 20, mm -hmm. 20 mm -hmm. fully electric vehicles to sell, to sell globally in 2023. Hold on. Holy shit. 20 vehicles by 2023? That's... Oh. Hold on. Both of these pursuits are going to require tens of billions of dollars in spending over the next decade to keep up with rivals, including Volkswagen, who we know... Mm -hmm. now paired with Ford. Right. So, and I think that is What's what started this because that happened and then this happened like right afterward. Um, now, well, the, that and Ford axed all of their car models yep. across the board. So it only makes sense that GM is going to follow suit. Right. Yep. So that, you know what? The, did you hear the buzzword in there? I did. Mobility provider. Mobility provider. So um, 
anyway, so everybody's basically doing mobility providing. Yeah, so you're not going to own your car anymore. You're either going to have a subscription service to your car. You're going to you're going to rent your zip cars down in the city. Yep, it's going to be like the uh, the um, aviation industry where you have a bunch of different companies that buy planes from Boeing or Airbus or whatever, mm -hmm. and then they slap all their shit on it and they fly you around. If that's what people think uh, is going to happen with cars. Yeah, Now, I've got an infographic here. I don't know. I'm going to look at it quick and see if there's anything worth worth grabbing off of it for you guys. Um, basically, digital-enabled car sharing and ride hailing. Profits from car making couldn't decrease by 122 billion euros. This is a European infographic. Sure. Profits from mobility serv services could increase $220 billion. Right. Um, so basically, why buy or why make cars to sell to individuals when you make more money selling cars to service providers such question, as like these The question is why, though? Why are, it's all based on what the consumer is going to do. Right. So it's not like the industry is deciding, oh, well, we'll just do this instead. It's kind of what like the people outside this building are going to be doing with transporting right. themselves around. So there's uh, five different business models that are supposedly going to be going on with mobility <laughs> providing. Okay. Um, luxury vehicle manufacturer, which is basically Porsche, okay. Mercedes, whatever, for the people that still want to be able to drive Buy themselves own that car. can afford to do it. Because sure. think about it. As the production numbers go down in terms of what you can you buy know, as a consumer, and demand. the price of them is going to go up, right. which is going to you know, it'll kind of be like a snowball effect. You'll see more of that. And then pretty soon you're going to see more mobility providing services. Mm -hmm. um, the other one is business to business asset provider, which is kind of like I said, like fleet providing, you know, like airlines do. Um, car mobility service providers, Uber, for example, Lyft. Right. Um, and then full mobility providers, which is, what does this say? Uh, blah, blah, blah. An intermodal ecosystem with partners, <laughs> including public transportation providers. So this is like buses. You know, right. That that kind of thing. So those are the. You notice none of those options are like regular people stuff. No, or, it's not consumer facing. Except it for it is. I'm sorry. It is consumer. I meant uh, uh, being able to keep driving your own car. None of this stuff is geared towards any of that unless you're rich. Well, it's interesting because the analogy is I. So I have a new iPhone 10s. Right. This is a $1,200 phone now. Ooh, but I don't look at you. I'm no, still what I'm saying is I don't own this phone because now I just have the upgrade program through Apple. Right. Yep. And so I don't own this phone at all. I'm right. just why would I when now I can just get a new one in six months and not have to pay the whole thing off? That's exactly what people are going to do with cars. Yep, You're talking about consumer behavior. You ask the question, why does everyone on the street, why are they going to be shifting? It's because your car is an appliance. They don't care. It's not part of the culture anymore. Yep. So why wouldn't I just get the latest and greatest and not have to own it when I can pay the service? It's less expensive. I don't have to worry about maintaining. Chris, what is oil? How do I change my oil? I have what? to check my oil? <laughs> yeah. What is this? <laughs> well, and tires? My tire blew you. out? So wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so what... Here's the deal. So what you're talking is basically people are going to be leasing cars a lot. And in England, the, the lease prices are very, very cheap. You it's get, not like, even leasing. Leasing is still you get the car for a month or every you know, three-month period or whatever. It's going to be like on-demand service. Like I hit my, my Chevy app, and I hit it, and now I can get one the, of the cars like, like Uber, basically. Like, or, no, it's like the scooters that are all over the place. Exactly. That too. So here's the deal. These cars all have to exist and be built. Right. What is going to happen to them mm -hmm. after, let's say they have 50,000 miles on them? Are they just going to, like, I feel like maybe they'll trickle down to, like, cheaper companies. That right. Run oh, for sure. Soon, all it's going to be the, the Sun Country and the Spirit line of, of vehicles, that's right? It, that's exactly it. Okay, so um, Trump is pissed. Right. Because he just cut taxes for 
everyone, really. Everybody Yo. got a tax cut, except I don't think you got a tax cut. No, I didn't. Most, 90% of people got, <laughs> <laughs> of people got a tax cut. Some of the one percenters did not get a tax cut, but most people got a tax cut. Most uh, corporations got tax cuts. Right. But in typical Trumpian style, he's mad. He feels like GM is stabbing him in the back. Right. Um, well, it's personal, you know. It is. <laughs> Yeah, it's personal, and he's all super upset that the 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 G, or the CEO of GM is like a Hillary supporter, and people are going on and on about that. And he's like, oh. So he says, um, Trump wasn't specific Tuesday when he tweeted, "We are now." I don't know if I can do a Trump accent. We're now we're now looking at cutting all GM subsidies, including electric cars. Like he didn't say anything super Trumpy in there. Like right. Uh, so I can't really do it. But the government um, sad. Sad. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> sad. Sad. Here's the thing. He can't do He shouldn't be doing anything about it. Well, I know, because the criticism before is when we gave him the bailout. Oh, government motors now, yep, right? That's yep. not free market, anything else. I understand where there, you are upset because you're like, okay, you spent all this tax taxpayer dollars to bail the company out to save you know, the economy, everything else. Well, not save it, but deter it from going down further. Right. Um, and now, of course, they paid back the loan in full with interest, everything else. Yeah. But you kind of expect, well, now you're cutting how many? 14,000 jobs? They, but here's the thing. Know, they, they have, have to. to. They don't they have, have a choice. And now he wants to be. But now that's, he's, that's a long-term uh, look on things, right? Trump doesn't like long-term. No, not, not always. Um, you can't I don't tweet know, about can't, that So the, the government has no business doing any of this. They, don't, they didn't have a business providing subsidies in the first place. Agreed. Okay, so now we're having the, him threaten to take the subsidies away that they never should have had in the first place. Without the subsidies being there, guess what? Trump wouldn't be able to say this. So all you have is this government interference in the market, which causes, the, uh, causes rifts and allows Trump to use it as leverage against GM. Which, if none of this existed, GM could do whatever the F they wanted to in well, terms of reacting to market forces. Right. Um, so, uh, blah, 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 the shift, blah, I think we already talked about this. So, uh, basically I asked, what are they supposed to do? Because they got tax cuts from the government. They're just supposed to keep the plants open and keep jobs. No, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't, you can't do that. So people are, so, um, Republicans in communist America, (laughs) we give you job because you buy our car. So Republicans are mad because they got the tax cuts and other laying off people. And, uh, and the, Liberals are mad because they're laying off people because they got the tax cuts. They're like both looking at it from like these <laughs> different weird angles, and none of it makes they shouldn't gotten the tax cuts. Well, they should get the tax cuts. They should get the subsidies to to, le- to, to be used as leveraged against because them the anyway. subsidies should all go to Tesla, Chris. Yeah, right. That's or, where all of our government money should go. Or they should go to Rivian. Rivian. And so I want to get into this a little bit because I'm like this like blew me away. Yeah. Um. So, so Rivian is a brand new well. Not brand new. It's an auto manufacturer focusing on electric vehicles. They came out of nowhere. Literally nowhere. Like a week ago, I'd never heard of them. No. And so they dropped. I should say, I've seen the name. Right. But you didn't give it any thought. Didn't give it any thought at all. No. And now they're like, holy crap, they're a Tesla competitor and doing much better. Not even competitor, right? Right. Quality-wise, they're amazing. Well, we've got Joel Fetter. He's going to come on the podcast in a little bit. But I want to say... Live from the LA Auto Show, actually. Live from the... Well, not live. We're going to record it live and play it for you guys whenever you decide. we're going to talk to him live from the LA Auto Show, That's right. And where he's been looking at the Rivian. Now, here's the deal. Why is this happening? Just quiz. Why? Why what? I'll just tell you. 
Because <laughs> that's what I want to do anyway. Okay. So this is really kind of neat. So I, this, there's another car that I just saw pop up on the internet called the Pina Farina PFO, yeah. which will purportedly be the world's most powerful car. Pina Farina. 1,700 pound-feet of torque, some supercar, blah, 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 blah. But here's what's going on. You've got Tesla kind of like kicked this off a little bit, allowing mentally people able to do this. But you've got like this unregulated drivetrain that is people are just going crazy. There's all these startup companies and all these like all, everything's coming to market right now. You've got Rivian, you've got these Pino, whatever. And you've got uh, there's I, I went through them on last week's podcast. There's a couple other, you know, startup companies that are it, there's no way that you could have a combustion engine startup company right now. Right. The barrier to entry for these companies is much lower. Than Why having is that? The manufacturer. Because everybody's starting from scratch. Even oh, GM, You're even right. GM good is point. like they're everybody's at the base floor right now. Yeah, moving forward, um, Tesla got a head start, but they're I don't know how much longer they're going to be able to compete with some of these other uh, other companies. But everybody's at the base floor right now, so everybody's innovating at the same time, and there's no barriers to entry. Right. There's no. Um, well, it's equal barriers to entry in a way. It just depends on what your resources are. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, obviously, there's resources needed. To you start and I a company. probably couldn't start. An electric car company. If we right had a now. great idea, we could probably get investment, but I don't have any great ideas. So that's probably not going to happen. Let's make an electric truck that actually looks good. Yes. And let's talk to, uh, we're going to take a little break here. We'll come back with Joel and he's going to talk to us about Rivian and what's going on with them because I have a few questions. We'll be right back. Hey guys, how are you? Very good. How's the uh, how's the LA Auto Show working out? Oh, you know, it's just another day in paradise. <laughs> you know, I thought about going to the Detroit Auto Show, and then I kind of looked at everything that was going on, and I was like, eh. Joel, he sent me <laughs> the like, text. Eh, yeah, no, yeah, like, no, that but doesn't seem worth it. So we'll we'll be thinking about you when you're when you're suffering over there. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure that you're going. Well, it's it's the last one in Detroit for uh, for winter. Then they're moving it to June. That's right, which will oh. actually probably make a really big difference. I, I I'm assuming. Anyway, so I wanted to talk to you about a little bit about Rivian. Now we've been talking about it on the podcast a little bit before you came on, and we're just amazed at the fact that they were able to do this so quietly. And then come and just drop this bomb on everyone at the LA Auto Show, or everybody just seems to be blown away. What are your thoughts? So, I mean, it's been kind of quiet, but not kind of quiet, right? So, we've been, we've been talking about that Rivian as a company for years. Uh, they've got Saudi money. Uh, they got Tom Gale as their lead as a designer from the original Viper. Anthony uh, Anthony Sheriff helped launch the McLaren Automotive road car business. He's there now. Uh, back in 2011, they got Peter Stevens. Uh, as their director of design, he helped design the uh, McLaren F1 and Jaguar XJR15. Uh, so, I mean, they've got some big names and been getting some heavy hitters now for years. Uh, and, and they've got money. And their CEO is XMIT, uh, and, and they're doing it really smart. They've just been quiet about their car plans. And over the last couple of years, they've been saying a few things like, you know, we're going to make a truck, we're going to make an SUV, but they really didn't say much. Like this, the opposite of Elon and Tesla saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, right? Uh, and so now... But they, they, they haven't uh, been doing anything on Twitter, right? I mean, that's kind of the... No, no. There's, there's no weed smoking, there's no Joe Rogan interviews, there's no tweet storms, right, you know... Right, right. So I mean, we've got this quote we want to read from, from them, 
Yeah, so this is from, Joel, if I can read this to you, this is from Scringy, or Scringe, however you say the CEO's last name. Quote, we were quiet in stealth mode to avoid getting caught in this sort of hype cycle. And we said, let's make sure we have all the pieces lined up, the vehicle, the technology, the team, the supply chain, the manufacturing plant, before we actually talk about it. Because of that, some people have been questioning us. People need to see that this is very, very real. So what what was your perception of them before you saw these vehicles, and what is your perception now after finally seeing them? So side note, I will just say, just full disclosure, I met him this morning and oh, talked wow. with him so uh, when I was poking around the cars. Uh, he, he was. I've been by Elon before, so that's a difference, uh, dude. You know, he looks like a, he looks like he came out of a Patagonia commercial. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, hunter green jacket. You know, just some chinos super down to earth. He walked up to me. I was talking to their PR guy uh, about uh, interviewing him tomorrow with my coworker. Uh, and, and when I was done talking to the PR guy, I was poking around the SUV and he walked up to me. He's like, I just want to introduce myself. You know, here, I, I'm, I'm so-and-so I'm the CEO. And I saw you're talking to, you know, Michael and we're going to do an interview tomorrow. I'm looking forward to it. I just want to introduce myself. And, and that was just, wow. Right. Like CEOs don't do that. Uh, Elon doesn't do that. So just, just wanted to say that like, I met the guy this morning. Super nice guy, down to earth. Um, he just wanted to meet me. Anyway, uh, so the answer to your question, uh, I think there's some smartness to that, right? And, and Luce has been doing something similar. Uh, a couple other stars have been doing something similar. I think there's some smartness to that, especially with, like I said, the hype and Elon and, and Tesla. And, and we've known they've been doing things, but they've been pretty quiet about it. And, and I think for us, we've never questioned they're doing it. We've always just questioned what they're doing since we didn't know. Uh, and now... That they and as journalists, everything. having no information is like, it's like you're dying of thirst and <laughs> hunger if you don't have the information. So it makes you wonder and think and speculate. Yeah, right. We've been thinking, we've been wondering, we've been speculating, but, 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 but we've never questioned that they weren't doing something. We just questioned what that was sure. is really what it is. So and, what, what, and now that we – go ahead. No, I was going to say, what do you think their target market is for these trucks? Funny you should ask. I was talking to them about this morning, uh, and, and – so really, they, 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 what they told us, and, and looking at the thing, it, it, it's accurate. They basically said there's this white space, right? Elon and Tesla and all of them are going after general consumers as far as they got cars, they got SUVs. These are road-going stuff, right? And then you've got no one's doing something that what, if Land Rover made all electric vehicles, that's kind of what this would be, right? These are lifestyle vehicles. They're active, outdoor, urban. It's kind of like With CEO. an 11,000-pound towing capacity, though. Right. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> So, so I well, hang on. First off, I read seventy-seven hundred pounds, but that was on the SUV, not the truck. So, so uh, looking at these trucks, this isn't going to the dude that buys an F one fifty is not buying this truck. Okay? Right. Uh, the guy that's going to go surfing at the beach and want to and, and can't go buy a, uh, his old school disco and can't buy the old Defender, he's going to buy this truck for a surfboard adventure or going to, uh, and, and camping in, in Angel's Crest. And, and and the people that would buy a Land Rover Discovery. Or, or, or a Defender, you're going to buy this SUV. And, and I got to tell you, uh, I, look, I, I know how you feel about electric cars. Fun fact, by the way, the CEO, when he was younger, he grew up by Cape, uh, Cape Canaveral and Kennedy Space Center. He used to restore and refurbish classic Porsches. Oh, nice. Hmm. Yeah. So, so, so like-minded people here. Uh, <laughs> it, my wife, you know, I, I get in different cars every single week, right? right? And so she sees all these cars and whatever. I posted all these pictures to Instagram earlier, and she actually commented, which she never comments on my car crap, and said, 
what is that? When's it coming out? I like that. I'm like, I love you. Thanks for marrying me. This is awesome. Uh, <laughs> it, it's so good looking in person. And it's simple. It's clean. It's rugged. I mean, the, the truck's wearing KO2s, man. It looks really, really good. And now yeah. what's funny is I saw that your next post on social media was you were talking about the Tesla and, and what you saw there. Can you tell us a little bit about what you <laughs> saw and how it contrasted with what you saw at Rivian? Yeah, so, so full disclosure, right, I, I've actually now been in two Model 3s in the last four weeks, just full disclosure. Uh, the cars that are on display at, at the auto show, and, and I can't speak to these cars. In history, the Tesla cars at auto shows on display have actually been customer cars on loan, just so you know. I don't know if these ones are customer cars or company-owned. They have a Model 3, a Model X, and a Model S. The Model S, perfect. There's nothing wrong with it, but good Lord, they've been building it for how many years? They better be able to get it right now. Uh, the Model X, that thing's a train wreck, and, and, and just in general. In general, the thing is a train wreck. Uh, but this particular one, like I opened the driver's door, and in the gap, you know, like behind the front fender, all you can see is completely unpainted primered metal. I'm like, oh, my God, this thing's probably like 110 grand. And then you shut the driver's door, and the metal for the driver's door, the panel itself, it like, it, there's no better way to say it other than it vibrates. Like it literally shimmies, and I took video of it just like waving as you shut it, and it hit the, and it, it shut. I'm like, oh my lord! And it's for like a moment of time. It's not just like a little <laughs> shimmy. It's like one, 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 one. Oh yeah, no, there's a reverberation <laughs> there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the and reason then the I, model the three. Reason, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, so the model three actually had a thin spot on the paint on the rear trunk lid. Like I could see the primer through the paint. It's, a, it's like a white spot. So now when you think about this and then you look at the quality of what you saw with Rivian, what they brought, what's your takeaway from the contrast there? Um, so the cars that saw Tesla, uh, hang on, I'm going to answer two parts, right? The cars that saw Tesla are absolutely off-the-line production cars, whether they're owned by Tesla or whether they're owned by consumers. Those were production cars. And I've actually been in two production Model 3s now, and we as a team have been in multiple. And it's clear the later cars that are being built – so full, uh, one I was just in last weekend that was within weeks of being built, 99% perfect. I mean, like, almost three series quality today. The one that I was in, in four weeks ago that was built in January, really close to that. The one we were in a year ago, B-pillar rattles, a nightmare. Uh, so, so Tesla's building these cars. The ones at Rivian stands, those are absolutely hand-built, pre-production styling design bucks. Right. That we're not allowed to get into and climb into or touch. Right. So well, you, you got to so think. I think of it this way though. It's almost like when you're, let's say you're gonna you you meet a girl online and she's really pretty, okay? And you, I really like how you're. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's great. And then you you show up and you're wearing the clothes that you wore yesterday that are wrinkly and maybe some stains on the knees, even though you've got great clothes in the dresser. Why, and you but you show up wearing this other stuff. You're not. So why isn't Tesla? Yeah. Why aren't they bringing it? What's, what's the problem here? I can, so it's a simple answer, really. You're a car guy. Both of you guys are car guys, right? I'm a car guy. The people that are buying these cars legitimately do not care. They are like, wow, this is the future. Wow, this is technology. And they don't care if there's a paint trip. They don't care if the trim doesn't line up. And they don't care that there's that door. They don't even know what paint primer is, dude. They so, don't. Yeah, but, but you, as, you as the motoring press, Joel, are going to point that out to them, aren't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I did. I right. did on Twitter. And, and, and it's funny because when I praise something Tesla does, I get flamed and destroyed. And when I <laughs> say something bad about Tesla, like I point out a critical thing, 
I get flame and destroyed. There is no winning with Tesla. Um, right, and, right. and that's just it. Like, I, I, I'm a journalist, right? So people are like, oh, you're in their pocket because you're praising them. I'm like, no. If they do something good, they do something good. I'm going to praise them. And they do something bad, I'm going to tell them on it because that's my job. Right, right. Well, I think people are, they, like you said, they don't care. And I think that's, you, you touched on a little bit, they're buying an idea, not a car. And I think that's kind of why they're, they're buying. Are, it's, a, it's, it's an iPhone, right? It's, it's four wheels and electronics, right? And that's kind of what I want to be Yeah. Right. Well, well, that's kind of what these are. But the Rivian things aren't. They kind of are because they are really battery pack at three electric motors, right? But but those things have character. Like a Defender has character, right? That yeah. SUV has character, man. It's not a bar. So yeah, whoever well, penned that car, cool. it looks it looks good. Whoever penned that, I mean, did a better job than anybody at well, Tesla the design has done team is the design team is X Viper, X McLaren. I mean, what, 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 yeah, the world class. They're bringing in. The, the good people, the, the big good guns. talent. Well, that's well, not, I, only, not only that, before you go, Joel, I just want to say, I mean, this is a functional car. I mean, you're talking about it, it is a niche vehicle is what their market is, and I've read their marketing piece too. They, they use the term adventure vehicle. But at the same time, this is much more functional and utilitarian than a Tesla ever will be. You know, 7,700-pound towing capacity, or I'm reading 1,100, where the truck and the range you have and everything else and the storage, it's like, why wouldn't you have this over a Tesla Model X? So I think Rivian, so, I think they're going to really make up some ground here. I think, I think, I think the target market, and, and this is the discussion I had with them earlier today, uh, is a Land Rover buyer. And, and Land Rover is not. It, it's a mass market car, but it's not mainstream, and it's not high volume, right? And so Well, it is less reliable in it. The, 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 thing doesn't even, <laughs> the car doesn't even, the truck doesn't even <laughs> exist yet, and it's already more reliable than the Land Rover. That's true, but 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 like uh, a Model Three right now, you can buy one for forty-two grand, right? And and that's for incentives, and and the third theoretically, supposedly someday getting a thirty-five thousand dollars one. Let's just say they do. Let's just say they do theoretically. That's a mass market car, an SUV that like this SUV that starts at sixty, and then let's just say theoretically it's a four hundred mile range when it goes to one twenty. That's not a mass market car. So I think that's I think they're trying to be setting expectations correctly, so they don't have a problem that Tesla has of unrealistic unrealistic expectations right right well i'm really excited to see where they go and uh i'm sure i'll be posting on your social media you can is there anywhere that people can follow you if they want to see what's going on yeah 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 i mean my, joel fetter on on instagram joel fetter on twitter joel fetter on facebook i mean my name basically everywhere uh and then you can read all our stuff on motor authority green car reports and the car connection all right we Sounds really appreciate good. you coming on man you take care of yourself yeah thanks joel and thanks, thanks for guys. calling from keep the warm. la auto show i can uh, hear yeah, the excitement no in your voice we will keep warm yes we'll I, keep warm we can hear the excitement unless you're over caffeinated maybe that's what it is free coffee there it's all the call it's all the shitty coffee and the uh the lack of sleep i do hear the classical music back in the background trying to calm you down so at least they, there's that so all right man take care right, of yourself thanks joel thanks guys bye-bye bye, -bye. bye. Well, that's uh, that was great to hear. I mean, I, I really like the the Rivian. What I really like is that they were so not what Tesla did, and that's what I really really like about it. Is they kept it close to their vest, and then they they just kind of were like, bam, this is us. What do you think? Right. It's actually what a traditional auto manufacturer does. Right. Yeah. Did, did you like my first date comparison? That was a really good analogy. That was yeah. really good. Wasn't no, it? that was. And yeah, it's just weird how Tesla doesn't bring for being. I mean, they have a lot of money invested in these things. The, I still here, don't know the answer. Why aren't why. they? What? Here's why. It's because Elon Musk is not an auto manufacturer. He is. A, he's an idealist. He's right. A, he's he's an he's idea guy. He's a marketing 
guy, though, as well. Yeah, but... Why doesn't he have show cars? He has the money to bring it out, and then the press won't go nuts Because on it's him not for... what he... He doesn't, ca- he doesn't care about that. That's not... He's above all of this, doing all the things yeah. that he's doing. And these guys, Rivian, all they want to do is build these cars. You know, Tesla wants... Elon wants to change the world. I see what okay? you mean. He's and, more about the idea. Yeah, he wants to change the world and make things better for humanity, which is awesome. But not so much when you're trying to build a car that people right. are actually going to use. Right. You know, and then Rivian, they're just like, hey, let's let's drop this bomb on everybody at the LA Auto Show. It's anyway, awesome. check that thing out. You can go and look it up online or whatever. I think that's all we have for today. I think that's we it. We do. Yeah. Check us out on social media. Keep engaged. We love to hear from you guys. Instagram, Patreon as well, as we mentioned. Otherwise, we will see you next week. Yeah, don't forget to leave us a five-star review too. Five stars only. Hit us up on iTunes there and, <laughs> and drop it. So uh, leave a comment in the field. We'd really, really appreciate it. It would really help us out. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next week.